Good morning. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to the book of Colossians. And as you turn there, uh, I'd like to begin with a question. What is the key to spiritual fulfillment? Fulfillment is something we all desire in one form or another. There's something in us that longs for the kind of meaning, purpose, and fulfillment that a good job, a nice car, and a clean bill of health just doesn't provide. A recent survey showed that only about 38% of Americans are satisfied with their lives. So only about 38% of Americans say that they're living a fulfilled life. And when you look at the numbers overall, Americans are less satisfied than at any point in the last 20 years. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds depressing. But let me ask you, how have you found fulfillment in your life? How have you found fulfillment as a Christian? Does your life have joy, meaning, and purpose? Or are you still looking for spiritual fulfillment? Well, this was an important question, even in the ancient world. You see, there was a church in Colossae, and it consisted of Christians who were struggling with this same question. How do we find spiritual fulfillment? And what's worse is that there were false teachers there who were saying that if you want to find fulfillment, that if you want to experience Christianity in all of its fullness, you need something more than Jesus. You need Jesus plus something else. And so in this very letter, Paul will respond to such teaching. Uh, Paul wants the Colossians to know that to add something to Jesus is to take away the key to spiritual fulfillment. He wants them to know that if you have Jesus, you have everything you need. Because if you truly have him, you have the fullness of God. And so therefore, you are complete. Go to Colossians 2. Verses 8 through 10. The title of today's sermon is Complete in Christ. And our text today is from Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, as we continue our series in the book of Colossians. Starting in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we look to your word, would you show us Christ? And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts Bring glory to him, our all-sufficient Savior. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to remind you that the point of the Bible is Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the subject of the scriptures. And I also want to remind you that the point of Colossians is that Jesus is sufficient. He is sufficient for living the Christian life. Now, up to this point, Paul has already told us why Jesus is sufficient. Paul believes that Jesus is sufficient because he is supreme. He is supreme in creation, uh, he is supreme in redemption, and he is supreme in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But in our passage, Paul brings us back to the issue 
of the false teachers. You see, the false teachers are trying to supplement Jesus with worldly philosophies. They were saying that Christians ought to begin with Jesus, but then they need to add to Jesus to be truly fulfilled. But here's Paul's argument. Paul's argument is that when it comes to Jesus, addition means subtraction. Because when you add to Jesus, it actually draws you away from Jesus and away from the path to spiritual fulfillment. And so what Paul does here is he gives us three ways, three things we can do to make sure that we stay focused on Jesus. So first, he tells us to avoid empty philosophies. Second, he wants us to affirm Jesus's deity. And third, he wants us to acknowledge that we are complete in Christ. So avoid philosophies, affirm his deity, and acknowledge that we are complete in Christ. Point number one, avoid empty philosophies. Paul begins by telling the Colossians to avoid the philosophies of the false teachers. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty the seat. Now, Paul here is not talking about philosophy in general. You see, the term philosophy had a broad meaning in the first century. And so a philosophy could simply refer to a set of ideas. So, for example, any kind of belief system could be called a philosophy. I had a friend in college who was a Christian, and this guy refused to go to philosophy class because he thought that based on this verse, God was against philosophy. Needless to say, he failed the class, and he deserved it. But you see, the word philosophy simply means the love of wisdom. And sometimes philosophy can be helpful to a Christian, especially when it comes to thinking through the different doctrines of the Bible. So Paul is not against philosophy. What he's against are the ideas and practices of the false teachers. He's against their philosophy, their beliefs, and their worldviews. And he's against them because they were not according to Christ. Well, as we look at verse 8, I want to ask three questions to organize our thoughts about the empty philosophies in Colossae. The first question is, why is it dangerous? Right? Why are these philosophies dangerous? dangerous. Well, Paul says that one reason is because it takes you captive. It imprisons you. You can almost sense Paul's urgency, right? When he says, see to it, beware that no one takes you captive. Now, the word for captive was used for prisoners who were captured during war. Uh, So in ancient times, when an army would take over a city, the citizens of that city would be taken captive as slaves. And so what Paul's afraid of is that the Colossians, who were delivered from the domain of darkness, were once again in danger of being enslaved, this time by these philosophies. So I was reading an article written by True Crime about people who get taken captive. And so it was an article about people who have been kidnapped. And it talked about how those who get kidnapped are either imprisoned in homes or they're trafficked overseas, but they're all held captive for weeks months, and even years. And thankfully, some of them escaped to tell their stories. But what I remember from that article was that the list of people who escape is actually really short. In other words, if you get caught, chances are you don't escape. You don't break free. So this is what Paul is saying about these philosophies. 
that if you get caught, if you get duped, if you get kidnapped, chances are you won't escape. You'll be enslaved and you may never break free. So friends, see to it that no one takes you captive. Now, the second question is, what do we know about them? Right? What do we know about these philosophies? Well, Paul says that they were characterized by empty deceit. Now, the phrase philosophy and empty deceit is really one idea. So you could also translate it as empty and deceptive philosophy. Now, to be empty means to have no spiritual value. It means to lack any real substance. So, so however appealing these philosophies were, they were ultimately worthless. It's sort of like the wisdom we get from fortune cookies, right? They sound nice, but they're totally worthless. They add no value to your life whatsoever. Later on in chapter 2, we see that the reason these philosophies were worthless was because they focus on regulations. Regulations that were not according to Christ. Look at Colossians 2, verses 20 and 23. Paul says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So you see, despite the appearance of wisdom, the philosophies were of no value. So they were ultimately worthless. Friends, the fact is, any philosophy, any religion, or any worldview that is not according to Christ is worthless. It will never provide spiritual fulfillment. Now, not only were the philosophies worthless, empty, but they were also deceptive. It's kind of like those phone calls you get that promise you a free vacation, right? It sounds good, it seems true, but it always disappoints. And friends, that's why people buy into it. I mean, think about all the cultural temptations of our day. They are so deceptive. For example, like how beauty is only external. Or, or what is right and good comes from your feelings. Right? So if it feels good, it is good. Or, or how about this? Your goal in life is to be healthy, wealthy, and comfortable. These temptations are deceptive. And they're deceptive because they promise you happiness, but they always leave you empty. Right? It promises joy and fulfillment, but it never, ever delivers. So why is it dangerous? It takes you captive. What do we know about them? Well, they were empty and deceptive. And then the third question is, where does it come from? Right? Where do these philosophies come from? Well, Paul says here that they were according to human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world. So first he says this, that it has its source in human tradition. Now, just a word about tradition. Tradition that is according to the Bible is good. All right, tradition that it preserves God's truth is good. For example, here at North Shore, we commonly recite creeds, like the Apostles' Creed or the Athanasian Creed. And we also study confessions, right? Like the Westminster Confession or the London Baptist Confession. These things are traditions that have been handed down for many years. Or what about this? Every week we say, this is the word of the Lord when we read scripture. And then you say, thanks be to God. That is a tradition. 
So traditions are good if they match up with Scripture and they serve to preserve Scripture. But tradition that is not measured with Scripture is bad, especially when it elevates man's opinions over God's truth, which is what was happening here in Colossae. Now, the false teaching was also according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, what in the world are the elemental spirits of the world? This is what I think. The elemental spirits are demonic forces that oppress our fallen world. They are demons that oppress our fallen world. You see, there's a supernatural element to these philosophies. Sin's philosophies are the products of a sinful, fallen world. And the Bible says that the world is under the power of the evil one. Then at its core, they are demonic. That's what Paul is saying, that there are demonic forces behind them. Friends, Satan has always been about trying to destroy human souls through lies. Jesus said that Satan is the father of lies and that he was a murderer from the beginning. And these philosophies were lies, and they were as murderous to our souls as the lies told to Adam and Eve in the garden. Like all false religions, all false ideas, all false worldviews, they were demonic. Well, okay, so let's summarize Paul's warning about these philosophies. He says that they were empty, deceptive, man-made, and demonic, and they were not according to Christ. And so the Colossians must avoid them lest they be taken captive. Now, I could spend forever trying to flesh out what I think these philosophies were. And in fact, that's what I'll do a few sermons from now. But it might be more helpful if I gave you some examples. Let me give you some examples of empty philosophies in the world today. And I'm going to give you four. Number one, humanism. Humanism. Humanism says that man is at the center of the universe. It says that the goal of the universe is not the supremacy of Christ, but the supremacy of man. It denies God's existence, and it puts man as the measure of all things. And so since we are the measure of all things, we are the ones who determine what is right and wrong, since God doesn't exist. Humanism also says that the only thing that matters is the physical world. And if all that matters is the physical world, then there is, by definition, no such thing as a human soul. And so you're just a bunch of animals. And when you die, you rot. That's what they say. Humanism has been the dominant worldview. It started in American universities in the 1930s, and it has spread to every part of society. By the way, I found out a few weeks ago that the head chaplain at Harvard is a humanist who denies God's existence. Friends, just imagine that. We now have chaplains who deny God's existence. That's humanism. Number two, relativism. Relativism says that there's no such thing as objective truth. There's no such thing as absolute objective truth. It says that all truth is relative. So what's true for one person may not be true for another. Uh, Your truth may not be my truth. My truth may not be your truth. Truth is something we should choose for ourselves. But the Bible says that truth is absolute and that whatever God says is true. It's true for all people in all places at all times. Relativism is what characterizes the postmodern age that we live in. And it's one of the reasons why we see people today not only redefining gender roles, 
but redefining gender altogether. That's relativism. Number three, mysticism. Now, unlike the previous two, uh, mysticism affirms God's existence. But it claims that the way to get access to God is by emptying your mind and transcending your senses. So, for example, there's a well-known speaker in the Baptist world who says that she regularly hears God's voice as if it was something audible. So rather than hear God's voice through his word, she teaches people to empty their minds. That is mysticism. Now, the Bible says that we are to fill our minds with scripture, and we are to think biblically, and we are to pray biblically, and we are to seek counsel from others who use the Bible. Right? That's how we seek God's will. Not by feelings or emotions or an audible word, but by the sure principles of scripture. But mysticism says that we are to empty ourselves to get an, a private, audible word from the Lord. That is mysticism. And lastly, number four, legalism. Legalism. Now, we know this one well because for most of us, that's what the Lord saved us from. A legalism says that our standing before God depends on good works. So it's trying to earn God's favor through good works. Almost all of the major religions in the world teach legalism. Judaism, Islam, Catholicism, every major religion says you must follow rules to be saved. That's legalism. So we have humanism, relativism, mysticism, and legalism. Friends, these are just a few of the philosophies of our day, and they are compelling and powerful. And they can suck you in and take you captive. So if you want spiritual fulfillment, you must avoid these philosophies. You must reject them. They're not compatible with biblical Christianity, and they will lead you away from Christ. So see to it that no one takes you captive. Point number two, affirm Jesus' deity. So avoid empty philosophies and affirm his deity. Look at verse 9. For in him, that's Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So here's the thing. The reason we don't need empty philosophies is ultimately because in Jesus, we have the fullness of God. Right? It's not just that they're empty and deceptive and false, but in Jesus, we have everything we could possibly need. The fullness of deity dwells bodily. Friends, you need to know that the entire divine nature... Everything that makes God, God dwells in Jesus. Jesus is the Savior who is God. Spurgeon once said that the most essential truth of the Christian faith can be stated in seven words. Christianity is Christ and Christ is God. You see, it's the deity of Christ that separates us from all other religions. Right? All the other religions see him as a great teacher or even a great prophet, but nothing more than that. But the Bible declares with unmistakable clarity that Jesus is truly and fully God. And so what I want to do is to give you an overview of the Bible's testimony of the deity of Christ. And I want to do this in four ways. So first, I want to show you that Jesus performs the works of God. Second, he possesses the attributes of God. Third, he's given the title God. And then lastly, Jesus is worshipped as God. So works, attributes, title, and worship. Four ways the Bible testifies to the deity of Christ. 
First, Jesus performs the works of God. And what I mean by that is that he does things that only God can do. Right, friends? Only God can create the universe, right? Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But in John chapter 1, verse 3, it says that all things were made through Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. We also see this in Colossians 1.16, which says that by him, all things were created. So Jesus is the one who spoke the universe into existence. He created it out of nothing. But not only did Jesus create the universe, uh, he has to sustain the universe, right? Someone's got to keep it all going. John Calvin once said this. He said that all things would instantly come to nothing if it were not sustained by his power. And this is exactly what the author of Hebrews tells us when he says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus sustains the world. Also, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. That's kind of like a God thing, right? Only God can forgive sins. But Jesus shows us that he can forgive sins. He can wipe your sins away when he heals that paralytic in Mark chapter 2. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Also, throughout his ministry, Jesus taught and healed with divine authority. No one ever spoke like him and no one ever healed like him. Jesus also had the power to raise the dead. He raised the dead, he granted salvation, and he promises to return to exercise judgment. Friends, these are things that only God can do. And so we know that Jesus is God because he performs the works of God. Second, Jesus possesses the attributes of God. Okay, so since Jesus is one in nature and one in essence with the Father, he has all the attributes of God himself. First, we see that Jesus is omniscient, he is omnipresent, and he is omnipotent. Also consider his immutability. Right, right, we know that God is immutable. That's what it means to be God. Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. But Hebrews 13 verse 8 says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is immutable. He never changes. Also, Jesus is eternal. You see, uh, Jesus did not come into being at his incarnation. As the eternal son, Jesus has always existed. So from before time began and before the earth was formed, he was from everlasting to everlasting, just like the father. Jesus is eternal. Now, third, uh, Jesus is given the title of God. He's given a divine title. So there are at least seven verses in the New Testament which directly say that Jesus is God. And for your reference, I'm going to take you through three of them, and they all come from the Gospel of John. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus was and is God. John 1.18 says that no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So Jesus is God who is at the Father's side. And then in John 20, verse 28, Thomas, we have Thomas, who realizes that he was talking to the resurrected Christ. He says this. He says, my Lord and my God. Thomas confesses the deity of Christ. So it is the testimony of scripture that Jesus is God. He has a divine title. And then lastly, Jesus is worshipped as God. 
the Bible teaches that Jesus is worshiped as God. Please turn to Revelation chapter 5. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 5, verses 11 to 13. Now, you're all familiar with this passage because in Revelation 5, we see the worship of heaven. Right? This is the highest and most exalted picture of worship in the Bible. Look at Revelation 5, verses 11 to 13. The Apostle John says this, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So you see, Jesus, the lamb, is worthy to receive blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. He's worshiped as God. Now also notice this. Notice in verse 13 that the same praise that goes to the Father, the one who sits upon the throne, also goes to the Lamb, to Jesus. So Jesus is to be worshiped as God. The fact is, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is worthy of the same worship as the Father, and he's worthy of our worship today. And that's why we're here, right? This is not some, some fun club. Right? We're here to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why this church exists. So it is the testimony of Scripture that Jesus is gone. And in the fullness of time, Jesus took on flesh. Divinity took on humanity. He was truly God and truly man. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ, the God-man, dies in our place for our sins. And he rose from the dead, triumphant over sin and death on the third day. Salvation is through him alone, by faith alone. Friend, if you're here today, you're not a Christian. Let me ask you, what are you searching for? Do you want to know God? Do you want to experience the fullness of God? Well, then look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh. And he offers you eternal life if you would repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. You would believe in him, receive him, and give your life to him. Friend, this world has nothing for you. It is empty and hollow. Jesus says that whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. So friend, won't you come? Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Point number three. This is for those who are Christians. Acknowledge that you are complete in Christ. Acknowledge that you are complete in Christ. Look at verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So I want you to see the connection here between verse 9 and verse 10. Since Christ was full, verse 9, you get filled, verse 10. Here's Paul's argument. Since the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, if you have Jesus, you have been filled to the fullness of God. And to be filled to the fullness of God means to be made complete. 
In fact, the NASB translates it as, in him, you are complete. Friends, did you know that you are complete in Christ? You see, the false teachers were saying that the Colossians were incomplete, that they had to do something or believe something or even appeal to angels in order to be complete. But Paul says that if you have Jesus, you are already complete. Because of your union with Jesus, you get God. And if you have God, you have everything you need. Friend, do you know what this means? It means you cannot have joy outside of Christ. That's not the way it works. True joy can only be found in Christ. It also means that you cannot have true peace outside of Christ. And it means that you cannot have true life outside of Christ. A joy, peace, and life come from God. And since the fullness of God is found in Jesus, if you have Jesus, you have everything you need. So Jesus is enough. He is sufficient for living the Christian life. This is the message of Colossians, that Christ is enough. Jesus is enough even when your life is a mess. He's enough when your children are sick and in the hospital or when you can't pay the rent. Jesus is enough when your friends abandon you or even when your family abandons you. He's enough when you've lost your job, when your marriage is in trouble, or when the doctor says that you have cancer. Jesus is enough. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is enough? Perhaps the reason you doubt is because you've forgotten what is yours in Christ. H.B. Charles tells a story about a wealthy man who searched far and wide for lost treasure. So he sent an agent, he hired an agent to search for the lost treasure. And after years of searching, the agent reported that the treasure had been found. But sadly, it was found in the man's own warehouse. The man had been searching for something he already owned. This story, Charles says, is a sad parable of the Christian life as Christians search far and wide for what they already have in Christ. So do you know what is yours in Christ? Or have you forgotten? If you've forgotten, let me remind you from the book of Colossians. In Christ, you've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. In Christ, you've been reconciled to God by the blood of his cross. In Christ, you have all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In Christ, you're being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. In Christ, you have the hope of the gospel. And because Christ is in you, you have the hope of glory. In Christ, you'll be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before the Father. You have died with Christ, you have been raised with Christ, and your life is now hidden with Christ. Friends, you have the forgiveness of sins, redemption through his blood, and victory over the demonic powers of the world. This is what is yours in Christ. And remember this, because of Christ, you have a stewardship from God that you might live for him and make him known among the nations. A few months ago, we talked about Christ-centered ministry. And as you serve him in your ministry, you serve with the energy that he powerfully works within you. This is what is yours in Christ. And so in light of this, why would you look to anything else? Right? What could you possibly need outside of Christ? The fullness of God is not found in this world. 
It's not found in your job or in anything you own. It's found in Christ. The fullness of God is not found in personal success, in worldly achievements, or fame and popularity. It's found in Christ. So what could you possibly need outside of Jesus? The apostle Peter came to the same conclusion in John chapter 6. Jesus asked Peter, do you want to go away? Do you want to leave? This is what Peter says. Where else can we go? Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter knows that our meaning, our purpose, our fulfillment is found in Christ alone. And so we need nothing else. A Christian should be so full, so satisfied, and so captivated by Jesus that he has no room for anything else. So uh, back in December, I went on a cruise. And by the way, a cruise is just a buffet on a boat. That's what it is. It's a giant floating buffet. And you know, when you're at a buffet for three meals a day, you know, you could just keep going and going and going. You know that point when you're so full that if you were to eat something else, you would vomit, right? You know that feeling when your belly is so stretched tight, it's about to pop like a balloon. So there were a few times on that cruise where this was the case. And then at the perfect moment, right, the perfect moment, my wife Kelly will come up to me and say, you want to try something else? You want to try this? And so immediately I turn to her and say, no, no, no. No, I am full. If I eat that, I'll vomit. Likewise, a Christian should be so full of Jesus, so full of his promises, so full of his presence that whenever something tempts you, you can say, no, I am full. I know what I have in Christ. Nothing else in this world could ever satisfy, satisfy me like him. Let me close with three applications. Application number one is make sure that you have a Christian worldview. Make sure that you have a Christian worldview. Everyone has a worldview. Philosopher James Anderson says that a worldview is sort of like a belly button. Uh, everyone has one, but nobody ever talks about it. A, a worldview is also like the set of glasses, the lens by which you view the world. It represents our most fundamental beliefs and assumptions about God, ourselves, and everything else in life. So what is your worldview? And is your worldview a Christian one? One that is according to Christ and one that exalts Christ? Or is it according to human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world. What is your worldview? See, if you want spiritual fulfillment, then you must have a Christian worldview, right? If Jesus is everything to you, then he must dictate how you think about the world. The Bible says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It also says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So here are two ways to work towards having a Christian worldview. Number one, know the scriptures and be able to apply the scriptures to every aspect of your life. Know the scriptures and be able to apply it to every aspect of your life. You know, there are people who can wax eloquently about every doctrine, but they can't apply the Bible to things like politics or ethics or economics or things like abortion or same-sex marriage. You see, scripture is sufficient. Not just for salvation, but for every aspect of human life. So apply the scriptures 
to every part of your life. Number two, learn about the different worldviews out there so that you can avoid empty philosophies. Right? Any belief system that would suggest that Jesus is not supreme, that he's not worthy of our devotion, is demonic. We must identify them and reject them completely. For those of you who are parents, for all the parents in this room, you have to think about how you're raising your children. Uh, I fear that we've given the responsibility of raising our children to the culture. And the culture is more than happy to raise your children for you. Parents, you must understand the prevailing worldviews in our culture. You cannot live in a bubble. This means monitoring your children's social media use, right? Knowing what they're being taught or limiting their use or even taking away their social media use. Your kids will survive without social media. On the positive side, teach them to use their minds in a God-honoring way, right? Teach them to have a biblical worldview and be able to apply the Bible over and against man-made philosophies. Application number two, preach the Christ of the scriptures. Preach the Christ of the scriptures. You see, the truth is, when you're talking to an unbeliever, it is almost impossible to change their worldview, Have you ever tried? You can't. It's almost impossible to change someone's worldview. And your goal isn't to merely change their worldview, but it's to preach Christ, the one who is at the center of that worldview. You see, it's not enough for people to reject empty philosophies. I mean, if we were to get rid of humanism and relativism and all those things, the world would be a better place. But it would still be lost and without hope. They must embrace Jesus Christ. They must know Jesus in a saving way. And then Jesus, who sanctifies, can change them from the inside out. So you must preach the Christ of the scriptures. And in order to do that, you must know who Jesus is. So I have made a handout for you. That's kind of like my favorite thing to do these days. Uh, There's a handout for you if you want a paper copy. It's right here on this table. For those of you who are members, you've received an email and you have the electronic version. But it is an overview about the person of Christ. So the young adults of our church have been studying uh, the person of Christ over the past few months, but I want all the members of our church to be able to speak boldly and biblically about Christ and present him in a way that is clear and understandable. So study the scriptures, study what the Bible says about the person and work of Christ, and preach the Christ of the scriptures. Application number three, be consumed with Jesus. Be consumed with Jesus. Would you spend some time this week contemplating the sufficiency, the glory, and the beauty of Jesus Christ? Would you put down your cell phones this week, and would you open your Bibles, and in its pages, see and savor the Lord Jesus Christ? And then would you be so satisfied and so captivated by him that when temptations come, you can say no. I am full. I know what I have in Jesus. Nothing in this world could satisfy me like Jesus. And even if I suffer or even if I die, I will sing. Complete in thee, each want supplied, and no good thing to me denied. Thou my portion, Lord, will be. I ask no more. Complete in thee. Friends, spiritual fulfillment is found in Christ. And if you have him, you are complete. Let's pray.
Our God and Heavenly Father, we pray, we come before you now in your presence. We ask that you would take hold of our hearts and our consciences and bring us to repentance. Bring us to the cross. Bring us to Christ. And keep us there. Because there is where there's life and where there's fullness and where there's joy and where there's power. Would you do that today in all of our hearts? For your glory, for Jesus' sake. Amen.